uh, for this season that we remember Jesus came to save us. He is our Savior, and we thank you. May you bless this morning as we come to your word. Speak to us. Open our hearts and our mind. Remove any barrier, any arrogance, any pride that we will receive your word. And the word that seed of faith that plant in our hearts will begin to flourish, begin to bloom and blossom to be men and women of God for you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. When we turned the last pages of the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, through the silent centuries, 400 years, to the first pages of the New Testament, Matthew Gospel, it starts with a list, a list that we often like to quickly skim over it so that we get to the real stuff. But in reality, that's the real stuff. And in the list that is, I know it's a bit small, but it's the list of the genealogy, the family tree of uh, Jesus, right from Abraham. As we look through this list, there are four women that was listed here that we already mentioned last week from the introduction. Only four women was mentioned here, uh, including Mary, but this series we are not touching Mary, but just the other four. A widow who played the prostitute and a Canaanite prostitute, a Moabite widow and a widow pregnant by another man, and Mary, a younger pregnant before marriage. As I go through this list, I'm very puzzled by why Matthew only includes these four names, four women or five. Uh, why not say Abraham was the father of Isaac, whose mother was Sarah, or Isaac, the father of Jacob, whose mother was Rebekah, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, whose mother was Leah. Uh, but for some reasons, Matthew omit all those names, all those women, and down to verse 3, by saying, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And then down to verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, which is what we are going to look at today. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. So, so four women's names were mentioned there. Maybe, I don't know, I'm just guessing, maybe Matthew was at the very beginning of his gospel trying to manage our expectations of what kind of king this Jesus is going to be. And that his throne is a cradle. That his herods are shepherds. His palace is a manger. His parents are homeless and poor. His court is a manager of livestock. And his royal lineage includes a rape victim, Bathsheba, an abandoned widow, Tama, a prostitute, Rahab, which we're going to look at this morning, a widowed immigrant, Ruth, and a virgin, Mary. And each of these women have a powerful story that represents our longings for this very different kind of king. 
and shapes our anticipations of how his kingship will satisfy those longings. That Jesus would come not only to hurting women, but through hurting women. The pain is, pain is never the end of our story. Jesus changes all of that forever. And so in our, in our tradition, in the Christian tradition, we are often remember Rahab as the prostitute. Uh, of course, we can't blame that in the sense because five times Rahab was mentioned in the Bible, three, twice in the Old Testament and three times in the New Testament. And out of the five times, four times she was mentioned as a prostitute. The only time the prostitute was not mentioned is in Matthew Gospel. But nicknames can, can lock people in, isn't it? Like we call, for some traditions, say, Doubting Thomas or Virgin Mary. It can kind of like lock us in into thinking of that person as that is. That, that's, that's it, you know. Uh, forgetting that, for example, Virgin Mary is not remain virgin forever. She went on to conceive and gave birth to another five children or more. We already mentioned sisters. We don't know how many girls... I was born to marry, although we know three brothers, three boys, and sisters. Uh, we don't know how many more. So it doesn't help when we keep on thinking that Mary is just Virgin Mary in a sense. Uh, or Doubting Thomas. If you really know about Thomas, you wouldn't really call him Doubting Thomas in a sense. Because if you, if you read John chapter 11, when Jesus was telling the disciples, let's go back to Jerusalem. They said, no, 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 why would you want to go there? They're going to kill you. You just came from there. Now you want to return there. But Jesus said, we have to return there. I need to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so he's trying to convince the disciples, come, let's go. And Thomas spoke up for Jesus in, in John chapter 11, verse 16. Thomas, you know what Thomas said? Thomas said, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas was the one who tried to convince us. He said, come on, let's go, let's go, come on. Let's go so that we can die with him. So, so if we just lock the name into to someone's uh, name, in a sense, we kind of limit the, 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 the understanding of the person in different light. And so when we come to Rahab, uh, Rahab simply means broad, spacious, or vast. That's the meaning of uh, Rahab. And uh, many scholars have tried to argue that and, and soften her by saying that she was not really a prostitute. She's more like an innkeeper. Uh, but we can't get around that because uh, prostitute, the, the, the word in Hebrew simply, simply means harlot, or in Greek, kopone, which is, we got the word pornography and all that. Uh, comes from. So these words make it very clear that Rahab was a harlot. And we don't need to try to brush over her sins or her history and attempt to soften her reputations. Because we're going to see a very beautiful things that comes out of that. And so the difficulty with nickname isn't that it is incorrect, but that it limits our understanding of who she was. 
And unfortunately, in Christian tradition, the word prostitute is almost synonymous with great sinner. As always in the New Testament, uh, hanging around with sinners, a prostitute. Maybe, maybe I'm just saying, maybe Matthew deliberately include all those women names because she, he, himself, he himself was an outcast as he was a tax collector. So a more, but as anyone who understood modern-day slavery probably would know that uh, many, not all, but most of prostitution is not usually a voluntary industry in that sense. There are some, of course, they change the word into socialite or something like that. And a more comprehensive view of prostitution in the Old Testament times includes the reality that most of these women were victims of sex slavery. And perhaps prostitutes should bring imagery into our minds about a woman in bondage or desperate financial need and few options for survivor, not someone voluntarily living a life of sin. As I say, although there are some, but there are many who aren't in that kind of situation. Regardless of the circumstances, to focus on this as the primary indication of Rahab's identity misses the greater contribution she makes to the survivor and history of Israel. And so this is what I'm going to do this morning. I'm going to try to rename Rahab. See whether we can rename her. Because Joshua chapter 2 gave us a lot of other things that we can look at Rahab than just to lock her in to say, Rahab the prostitute. Let me just, uh, Joshua chapter 2, as we read, I, I won't read through that. I tried reading through that. It takes me about 4 minutes and 38 seconds. I want to conserve that as I will build five points into that chapter. Uh, and I want to bring up and try to rename Rahab and then I'll just give you a couple of applications all within the next, hopefully, 40 minutes or so. The first thing that I want to mention about Rahab, uh, renaming her, is that she is actually the social outcast. Let me read to you verse 1, right? Moses has already died, and Joshua has uh, taken over the leadership, and Joshua is going to lead the people into the promised land. And so before they entered the promised land, Joshua decided to send two spies. Remember, many years ago, maybe 38 or 40 years ago, he was one of the two sent by Moses, him and Caleb. And now, they, he sent another two spies into Jericho to, to, to do some groundwork. And it says here, Then Joshua, son of Nun, not that the, his mother is a nun, uh, Joshua, son of Nun, uh, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. He said, go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went, the two spies went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Interesting, isn't it? Uh, why go to a prostitute house? There are so many places you could go. It may seem strange that the spies found refuge in the house of a prostitute. What were they, people of God, doing there? And the answer may be quite simple. Uh, to state the obvious, perhaps the spies were seeking the services of a prostitute, which is very unlikely. And there is another possible explanation. The house of a harlot was probably a good place to avoid detection. 
because a couple of travellers entering such a house will probably not arouse much suspicion at all. And a good place to also get information where people talk and, you know, how you hang around pub or something, like people gossip and, and in the town, everybody knows everything because certain place has a reputation of people easy sit down there and chit-chat, a bit of wine, and every secret comes out of the town. So it's a good place to get information. Also, I think Rahab's house was situated on a city wall providing an escape route. Very easy to escape. It's not somewhere inside. We'll go through many houses. It's, it's at the outer side of the wall. And so it is quite a, a, a logical in that sense, very strategic to go to Rahab's a prostitute house for a specific purpose. But I just want to, he was a, she was a social outcast. She had three strikes against her. She was a foreigner, firstly. I mean, a Canaanite. She was a woman, she was also a prostitute. In other words, she was the epitome of the social outcasts in, at that time of the culture, for the Jewish culture. She's not someone who would expect to defile a king, to uh, save Israelite spies and play a part in God's people taking the promised land. It defiles common sense and logic, but this is exactly what happens. Rahab is the first occupant of the foreign lands to show loyalty to Israel and Israel's God, Yahweh, and is welcomed in as a new member of the nations. And so Rahab's stories, we are going to read through now, shows that God not only has a place for the socially marginalized and abused, but later on you're going to see that she also raises them up to do great things. And Jesus and God specializes in that. So the first thing we want to rename and understand is that Rahab was the social outcast. Secondly, Rahab, the rescuer. You're going to see Rahab in a new light, not just a prostitute, but she actually was the rescuer. That is from verse 2 to 7. We, we are familiar with the story, but I, I always want to read through it just so that you, you I don't know, so that you can see what God's Word says. This is what uh, uh, followed after they entered the prostitute house. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, bring out the man who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, she told a lie. Yes, the man came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had actually taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the man set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the forts of the Jordan, and as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Rahab, the rescuer. Did you notice that the book of Joshua tells the tale of the entry into Canaan, as almost like a mirror image of the exodus from Egypt that we, we talk about uh, 
couple of months ago, filling the accounts of the events of the entry with allusion to the... Is it all similar to what Exodus was? Throughout Moses' life, women saved him from the midwives who disobeyed Pharaoh uh, to the events to, to, the, to, to Zipporah, his wife, who appeased God's anger with a strange circumcision in, in, in chapter 4. and We didn't get to look at it. So similarly, Rahab acts for the spies as the midwives did for Moses when she defiles the king's command in order to save them. You see the mirror image? And further correlations, as you look at the book of Joshua and Exodus, it can be drawn between the two stories as Rahab even hides the spies from the king's men, just like Moses' mother hid from Pharaoh. So there's this mirror image, the rescuer. Rahab's story reminds us that throughout the Old Testament, God uses women to protect His plans for the future of the nation of Israel. God uses women, many, many women in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, to further His work. Because man has become lost the moral compass and become a passive man, no longer lead. God raised up many wonderful women to lead. Can't imagine a home without women. The mother holds everything together. They're like a button. You know, they hold everything together. Rahab, the rescuer, not just only the prostitute, but she rescued the nation of Israel. Thirdly, Rahab, the prophet. You would not associate Rahab as a prophet, but in some sense, she was a prophet. Look at verses 8 to 9. Rahab actually gives a declaration to the spies that Israel will successfully take over the land of Jericho even before it actually happened. She almost prophesies to them. That gives them the courage. And then the spies brought back the news to Joshua. Gives them the confidence to go in because they have a word from the Lord before it happened. So let me read to you in verse 8. It says this, Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up on the roof and said to them, I, listen to this, I know. Pay attention to the word, I know. She said, I know. I know that the Lord has given you this land, that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are mounting in fear because of you. We have heard. How did he you know? Hurt. Where does faith come from? Hearing of God's word. We have heard. How did she know? I've heard. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea some 40 years ago. Or, or you, when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Hawk the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. We heard about all this thing. When we heard of it, our hearts mounted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above 
and on the earth below. Wow, look at her faith. We, I know. Why I know? Because I've been hurt 40 years ago. We still remember that God has led you out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, conquered all his king, and moved away down now. So we have hurt. Hurt, I know, because I hurt twice. Verse 9 say, I know. Verse 10 say, we have hurt. Verse 11 say, we hurt. Faith comes from hearing God's word. So Israelites do not yet know this to be true yet. Do not know. But her words bear weight with them and, uh, and they carry her message back to Joshua, as I mentioned. And so Rahab's foretelling of the work of the Lord causes Joshua to move into actions. So Rahab was the first prophet after Moses to announce to Israel the paths of her history. Rahab becomes the first oracle of Israel's destiny. First prophet announcing what is going to come. Rahab was the prophet, not just a prostitute. She was the prophet prophesizing to the Israelite. This is what is going to happen. Number four, Rahab, the deal maker. The deal maker. Verse 12 says this. Now then, after I heard all this thing, please, he said, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Interesting, there was a study that went on to say that this is the only time that the word sisters appear. All other parts of it, when, when uh, eventually Joshua chapter 6 and other parts, somehow the sisters are not being mentioned. And so there's a study that associates how Rahab bring the whole family together. You will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the man assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by the rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. Very easy to escape. She said to them, go to the hills so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourself there three days until they return and go on your way. Now the man has said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land, which they did in Joshua chapter 6, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, see that the sisters and brothers are not there, and your brothers, no sisters, and all your families into your house, any of, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from this, 
from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, we have said. Let it be as you say. Let's have a deal. No contract, word of mouth. Your word and my word, that's the deal. So she sent them away and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and they stayed there three days, as, the, as what Rahab told them to do, until the pursuer had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. And then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Rahab, the deal maker, she strike a deal with the two spies and said, you're going to spare me and my family. And that tells you that her, what she was doing as a prostitute was some sort of a uh, not, not something she did it willingly. She was looking for a way out of this, this stage that she probably got tied into. And she was looking for a way out all this while and looking for God to deliver uh, her from this situation that she was in. Fifthly, the fifth thing that we can rename Rahab, that I believe, is Rahab foreshadowing the coming Savior. Right throughout Old Testament, as we have seen from the uh, uh, book of Exodus, there is a lot of this typology, the study of a type of Christ in the Old Testament, the pointing to Jesus coming Messiah. And Rahab is one of the foreshadowing person of the coming Savior. We saw this foreshadowing right back to Genesis chapter 3, when men fell into sin, when God intervened and God said, well, the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And then further down to Isaiah chapter 7 about coming Savior born through Virgin Mary. And then the imagery of the Passover lamb that Pastor Caroline mentioned that in her Exodus sermon. And then the day of atonement that we saw that in Exodus, all these are images pointing to future Messiah. And here we have this Rahab's scarlet cord. It's a foretaste of how redemption will also come to faithful Gentiles. And considering the possibility that Rahab was more than likely a victim of sex slavery as a prostitute, then Rahab would have been socially marginalized not because of her own sin, but because of the abuse done to her. She may not have initiated or willfully consented to the acts of prostitution performed, yet she would have to carry the weight of other people's sin through social stigma as if it was her own sin. And think back, who else in Scripture knows that kind of pain and burden other than Christ. Christ carried the weight of our sins on the cross as if they were His own. And so Rahab, in some sense, foreshadows the coming Savior who will be one of her descendants and who 
will, appear, who will bear the sins of the world. Three times Rahab was mentioned in the New Testament. Once in Matthew Gospel, once in book of James, and once in the book of Hebrews. And both James and Hebrews mentioned Rahab the prostitute, not so much to amplify her profession, her past. It is more to amplify and magnify the grace of God. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the Hall of Faith, Rahab made it there. Two women were mentioned, Sarah and Rahab was mentioned in the book of Hebrews. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. She was mentioned in the hall of faith. And the second time mentioned, or the third time mentioned in the New Testament is in James that we studied earlier uh, last year. Uh, again, talking about what true faith is. And, and James brought up Rahab as an example of what genuine, genuine faith is like. This is what James said. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she came lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. Rahab displayed genuine faith by acting out what she believed. After all, what is believe? Unless you act it out, unless you obey it, that proves that you believe. Just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, if Helmut is here, he will always correct my pronunciation on, on uh, Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer, that's right. Uh, um, uh, he said, only those who believe obeys. And only those who obeys believes. Meaning to say, Belief and obedience always comes together. You can't separate the two. When you believe, you obey. When you obey, it proves that you believe. One shot of it, it has to come together. And so James was trying to say, well, look at Rahab. Her faith was genuine. Her faith was real. She didn't just know about it. She acted upon it and believed that this God can deliver them as we have heard in the, in the Red Sea, opening the Red Sea and delivering the people out of Egypt. She said, I, I just heard of this story 40 years ago. I believe and therefore I obey. So it must come together. Obedience and belief must always come together. So her actions save lives and reveal her heart of faith. And despite of her background, her faith and action, he worked together to reveal her as a woman who believed in God. Let me give you uh, three lessons. We rename Rahab. I want to give you three simple applications, and then we'll finish it. The first one, I believe, is God saves those with a past. God saves those with a past. Jesus said it very clearly too in Mark chapter 2 and other parts of the gospel. He said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
God saves those with a past. I've mentioned this many times before that everyone has a past. Every, sin, no, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. Every saint has a past. Every sinner has a future. It's quoted by Oscar Wilde. God saves those with a past. Whatever past we have, God specializes in saving people with a terrible past, as we can see throughout Scripture. What whispers did Rahab hear? Condemnation, fear, shame, worthlessness, too many mistakes, too much regret, too late to change. And the good news is that no choice we ever make, no scars ever inflicted, no drink taken or words flunk or body misused can keep us from the saving grace of Jesus. Our past is never good enough to earn God's salvation, nor shocking enough to keep us from it. But let me just issue a word of caution to us all who have been Christian for many years, who bathe in church, uh, some sort of a, a sanitized moralities and all that. Uh, I want to issue you a word of caution by C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. He says this, he says, Finally, though I have had to speak of, at some length about sex, I want to make it as clear as I possibly can that the center of Christian morality is not here. If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting the pleasures of power of hatred. For there are two things inside me competing with the human self which I must try to become. They are the animal self and they are the diabolical self. Diabolical simply means disgracefully bad or unpleasant. The diabolical self, listen to this, the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is, that is why, that is why a cold, self-righteous prick who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than the prostitute. But of course, it is better to be neither, he said. A cold, righteous, or a cold, self-righteous prick who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. He went on to say, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. But the proud, the self-righteous, are in that danger. So whatever, so our issues may not be carnal sinned, it may be sin of the heart. You may sin with your clothes on in ways that are more grievous than Rahab sinned. Can I repeat that again? You may sin with your clothes on 
in ways that are far more grievous than Rahab's sin. Self-righteousness is the chief sin that Jesus confronts. You read that in Matthew chapter 23. And that is what, for Christians, for many years, we have to watch out for that. Because we have every potential to slide down that pathway. How is self-righteousness expressed? Maybe the know-it-all attitude, thinking you know more about the Bible than everyone else and you look down on the less enlightened. Maybe you are the super mind reader, believing that you can read all motives, few of which are as pure as yours. Maybe you are the predictor, predicting how a person will respond to every situation and holding out little hope of good behavior. Or maybe you are a labeler, assuming that a single error is symptomatic of a person's entire life and justification for writing them off, even though that was 40 years ago, or 30 years ago, 10 years ago, the person won't change. Or the user ripping from people's strength and damning them for their weaknesses. Is it not true? We amplify. We all got strength. What, I, what, what, what is my strength? Maybe your weakness. What may be my weakness? Maybe your strength. So we don't know. So we tend to amplify what we are good at, what we are naturally not tempted to. But we less focus on those that we are weak in and amplify others' weakness and not amplify and magnify their strength. The loader, refusing to forgive an offense, mooning it over and over again and failing to seek reconciliation. Or the super sanctified, believing you are more sanctified than others. Or the best friend of Jesus, believing you're, you've got something special going on with Jesus that is superior to all others. So what keeps most of us from God is not the sin we know we have, but the righteousness we think we have. So what is keeping you from God is not the sin we know we have, but the righteousness we think we have that is preventing you from coming to God. And so, application is God saves those with a past. And secondly, I think God not just only saves those with a past, God uses those with a past. I just hope and pray that Rahab's stories will convince you of that. God used Rahab mightily despite her past. In the first battle to conquer the promised land, God used Rahab to not only save the spies, but save her family. But God had even more for Rahab. You know why? Because she went on to marry Salmon. Some Scholars suggest that Salmon probably is one of the spies. We don't know. God used Rahab mightily. She went on to marry Salmon and they gave birth to Boaz. And Boaz married a Moabite woman, Ruth, which we will cover next week. He was able to look past the foreign nature of Ruth and redeem her. And when you realize Boaz's mother was Rahab, 
a fallen woman, it makes so much more sense why he loves Ruth. Rahab must have raised her son well, Boaz, to respect all women because Rahab was so disrespected by most men. So Rahab must have made sure the value is ingrained into Boaz that she would go on and embrace Ruth, a Moabite. She must have raised Boaz to honour God in everything because the God of Israel had finally brought her peace. Lastly, God redefines those with a past. He not just saves those with a past, not just uses those with a past. God went on to completely redefine the person. When Scripture mentions Rahab, she almost always called Rahab the harlot, as I mentioned, except in Matthew's genealogy. Matthew calls her Rahab, the mother of Boaz. God redefined Rahab from a fallen woman to a chosen woman. From a bad girl to a bride. From a mess to a mother. And from prostitution to progenitor of the Messiah. That down through the line, Jesus is going to come from that line. God redefines us when we are redeemed, when we are saved. He gave us a complete new status. Our shame, look at Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sin, look at 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us from our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Our hopelessness, look at 1 Peter 1.3. Praise be to the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our fear, God redefined that and said there is now no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Our rejection, 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Our ostracization, God redefined that again. Consequently, Ephesians 2.19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You are fellow citizens from God's people and also members of His household. While men may have used Rahab to her harm, God showed He could use her to His glory and include her in the birth line of Jesus, in the line of Messiah. Look at this. Tema, two sons, twins, Perez, and down through the line of Salmon, married Rahab, and they produced Boaz, who married Ruth. 
and down through the line become King David. And then this one, we'll look at it on Christmas Day, down through the line that Jesus came through this line. God saves those with a past. God uses those with a past. And God redefines those with a past. She ended up saving her whole family. You can read that in Joshua chapter 6. She gave birth to a son named Boaz who married Ruth. She was David's great-great-grandmother, was the ultimate greatest king in Israel. She made it to the hall of fame of faith in Hebrews 11. She becomes an example of living faith in James chapter 2. Yesterday, I was uh, having three parties because I have three small groups having their breakaway, lunch, dinner, and then in between, I will squeeze everything into... And I was driving to, to Horton, and I saw all these trees decorated by the council with a red ribbon, yeah? maybe you know, tie around the tree uh, during Christmas season. And I was looking at that, and I was preparing a sermon. I said, why not? This Christmas reminds you of Rahab's scarlet robe. They brought peace because of that. Joshua did not touch. It's almost like a Passover, isn't it? The, the similar projection by Exodus and Joshua. Why don't when you look at that this Christmas as you drive around, maybe it's just outside your house, you know, you got a ribbon there. Why not remind you of Rahab scarlet robe that brought peace to his house, her household? And this Christmas, Jesus came to bring peace to us. Peace comes when we make peace with God. When we make peace with God, we then experience the peace of God. And when we experience the peace of God, we can be a peacemaker. It comes in that order. You cannot be a peacemaker if you don't have the peace of God. You cannot have the peace of God unless you make peace with God. It starts from there. And may this Christmas season remind you of that, that you can make peace with God and then you experience the peace of God, then you can be a true peacemaker that is generating from the heart that has peace. Let us pray, shall we? Father, thank you for uh, your word. Uh, faith comes from hearing your word. The more we are acquainted with your word, our faith will grow. And Rahab did that. She knew because she heard long ago. And not just as she heard of it, she acted upon it. She acted upon it. And that is faith. Faith is not just knowing. Faith is acting on what we know. That makes it real. That makes it genuine. Thank you for this beautiful story of Rahab. She's not just a prostitute. The scripture mentioned that she's a prostitute to magnify the grace of God, magnifies 
the mercy, compassionate God that we worship. Jesus, our Savior, name above all names. We worship you this morning. May we find peace in our heart this Christmas, knowing that Jesus is our Savior. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Would you stand as we close this time of service with this beautiful song, Jesus, name above all names. heart, uh, the grace of God be in your words, the love of God be in your hands, and the joy of God be in your soul, and in the song that your life sings, may God the Father, may God the Son, and may God the empowering fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. Thank you, Lord.